And it's sad to say people fall away from the Lord. And I remember when I first became a Christian, I was so excited. And I heard about people backsliding and I thought, how can anyone who feels like this not want what God is offering? But as your journey with Christ goes on, things come in and things get in the way and life gets a bit tough and you don't pray this day and you don't read your Bible that day and you don't fellowship with people and just bit by bit by bit things get really hard and bit by bit by bit you start losing your way and bit by bit by bit you start getting further and further from God. He doesn't get further from you. You get further from him. And that's how somebody hardens their heart and ends up backsliding. And when the day of the Lord comes, if you're not with Christ, if you haven't kept renewing your life with him, kept having that relationship, things could be pretty dire. So it's sort of worth worth thinking about. So let's step back in time for about 2,000 years and a bit more. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. And it was said that when the next prophet comes, then the time of the Messiah is fast approaching. And a prophet appeared, and his name was John the Baptist. So let's have a bit of background about John the Baptist. His father was a Jewish priest from the tribe of Levi. His name was Zechariah. And he was the order of Abijah, sorry, not Levi. His mother was Elizabeth. And she was from the priestly line of Aaron. And she was a, Mary, uh, a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the eyes of God. They were careful to obey all the Lord's commands, all his regulations, but they had no children because Elizabeth couldn't bear children. And they were both now getting very old. And it was about this time, there was about 24,000 priests in Israel, too many to minister in one temple at one time. So they took it in turns. About 2,000 a day, 1,000 in the morning and 1,000 at night. So they'd get through all their 24,000 priests throughout the year. So twice a day a priest was to enter the holy place and burn incense to the Lord. Then one day Zechariah was chosen by lot. But it was no chance that he was just, it was not by chance that he was on duty, and it was not by chance that he was chosen that day to enter the holy place. It was perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, because with 24,000 priests, not everyone was going to enter that holy place. But God was guiding the events of history to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at Luke, chapter 1, verse 11 to 17. 
While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. Well, I think about at this time, John and Elizabeth had sort of given up praying for a child because she was past childbearing age. They were getting quite on in years. So I, I think John would have been quite taken aback when he heard that God's answered his prayers. Uh, yeah, God's answered his prayers. You will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or any other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. So in the Old Testament, abstaining from alcohol was part of the Nazarite vow, of special dedication to God. But the vow was usually temporary. It was just for a short time. And people would say, I'm going to make a vow for however long, and that's how long they keep it. But for a few individuals in the Bible, such as Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist, it was a lifelong commitment. And it wasn't a commitment that they made themselves. It was a commitment that was made for them before their birth. So <clears throat> John grew up and he became strong in spirit. And he lived in the wilderness for, until he began his public ministry when he was about 30 years of age. Now, because he was born of a priestly family, he could have gone into the temple. So it was his decision to go into that wilderness. It was his decision to spend time alone with God. It was his decision. And that's what he did. And John was the prophet that Malachi had said would be coming. He said God would send a messenger before the time of God's salvation. And this was John the Baptist. And John's purpose was to go before Christ, to prepare the way, to make straight the way for the make straight the way for the Lord. He was to be a voice and he was to present Jesus the Messiah to the people. That was his purpose. So let's have a look for his life in Luke 3, starting from the middle of verse 2. At this time, a message came from God to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. 
Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level. The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. Then all people will see the salvation sent from God. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You broods of snakes! Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, We're safe, for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not have good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? asked some soldiers. John replied, Don't exhort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I baptized you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area gathering the wheat into the barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used, so much, so John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. John also publicly criticized Herod for marrying Herod Dias, his brother's wife, and for many other wrongs he had done. So Herod put John in prison, adding this to his many other sins. So what was John's message? So what kind of man was he? His message was repent and be baptized. But first, let's have a look at what kind of man he was. When John appeared, it was the end of the old dispensation, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the new. It was the transition from law to grace. He was the foreclosure of the old and the forerunner of the new. And he was a plain man in every way, just like Elijah, who many compared with him. He lived plainly. He lived in the desert. He practiced self-denial. 
And as we heard before, he was a Nazarite from, from birth. So he didn't drink. And he communed a lot with God. Sometime, but he wasn't alone because he had God with him. And if you remember, when he was born, he was born filled with the Holy Spirit. So the whole time he communed with God, he had the Holy Spirit by his side and he was never alone. His clothes were plain. He wore clothes of camel hair, whether it was woven or robes or however it was. He had clothes of camel hair. I imagine they'd be itchy. <laughs> and he wore a leather belt round his waist. Nothing compared with the Pharisees of the day who wore nice gowns and strutted around in their robes, nice and luxurious and wore. He was a man of plain food. He ate locusts, creepy, crawly things, Ooh. and wild honey. Now, whether that was wild honey from wild bees or honey from like figs and things, he wore wild honey. And he was allowed to eat um, creepy, crawly things too. He was a man of plain speech. He said it as it was. He was confrontational. A man who stood for righteousness. He confronted the common people, tax collectors, soldiers, you and I. He confronted the religious elite, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He confronted Herod and lost his head for, <coughs> lost his head for it. So he spent time in the desert preparing physically and spiritually. And this was his message. John went from place to place on both sides of the River Jordan. And that picture there is a picture of the River Jordan as is now. I don't know what it looked like way back then. And he told people that they should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Now we're a Baptist church, so we should know all about baptism. But baptism wasn't new back in the Old Testament. Because back in the Old Testament, when a Gentile or a non-Jewish person wanted to turn to Judaism, they would be baptized. They would immerse themselves in water to show that they were willing to follow God and to willing to follow the laws of Moses. And it was the Pharisees who baptized the Gentiles. And Gentiles were no more than dogs to the Pharisees. They were almost lower than dogs. So when John came along and was saying, you need to be baptized, it was like, but that's for Gentiles. That's for the dogs. And that was why it was such a humbling experience for the Pharisees to have to be baptized. Because they were, it was saying, 
You're no better than those Gentiles over there. And you need to be forgiven. A very humbling experience for them. And that's the brokenness that John's ministry was trying to accomplish. The brokenness of the spirit, the brokenness of your pride. You need somebody. You can't get by on just knowing your Bible. You can't get by on thinking you're better than anybody else. You're all sinners. We're all sinners and we need God. So, in John's ministry, baptism was a visible sign that a person had decided to change their way. It was giving up a sinful and selfish way of living and turning to God. John took a known custom and gave it new meaning. And later on, the early church took baptism a step further, associating it with Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. And that's the baptism that we have today. When we get baptized, we're saying, I am getting rid of the ways of the world. I am dying to myself and I am going to live for God. And it's not the water that makes the difference. It's the attitude. It's the attitude of going into the water and coming out saying, I need forgiveness. I'm lost and I need a saviour. So even as a born-again Christian, we still need to continually humble ourselves before God. And sometimes we're most humble, in fact, most times we're most humble when things are happening in our lives. When things are going great and trotting along well, we don't need God. He's just there. He's, we can turn to him. We can say, oh, howdy, God. But when the rubber hits the road and life gets hard, we turn to God. God, we need you. God, hear our prayers. God, I've got no money. God, I'm feeling sick. God, things are happening to our families. That's when we turn to God. But we need to be there all the time. We need to be there all the time, falling on our knees, calling out to him and asking for forgiveness. When the crowds came to um, John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes. One version says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. And don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Now to the Pharisees, the coming 
of God, the wrath of God was totally foreign to them because they relied on their family lines. They relied on their heritage. They, re they didn't rely on their faith. For them, their way to God was inherited. They belonged to Abraham. In fact, they thought of Abraham as their get-out-of-free card. In fact, it's said that Abraham was standing there near the gates of hell so that any Pharisee that came down that road, he would say, oh, no, 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 he belongs to me and send him back to heaven. That's how they felt. And it can be similar for Christians too. Children brought up in Christian homes, they know the word of God, they know the ins and outs of God. And they think, family's a Christian, I know the word of God, I'm on my way to heaven. But it's not like that, it doesn't work like that. Everyone has to make their own decision to follow Jesus. Everyone is responsible for their own hearts. Everyone is responsible for their own actions. And everyone is responsible to make a commitment to Jesus before they die. So being good doesn't cut it. Living a good life doesn't cut it. Volunteering for anything doesn't cut it. It's not going to get you to God. It's good. It's good to do those things. It's good to be good. But it's not going to get you close to heaven. I think even the thief on the cross, he wasn't, wouldn't have been a good man. He was dying for the things that he'd done. But in his last moments, he said, Jesus, forgive me. And what was Jesus' reply? You will be with me this night in paradise. So it's not our good works that are going to get us there. It's our commitment to Christ. It's asking him for forgiveness, telling him that you love him and asking him to help you. So why did the Pharisees come out to John? Well, as I said before, it was widely recognized that when a prophet appeared, the Messiah would be far, wouldn't be far away. So when John came on the scene, they were excited. They were ready, they thought. And John was a great prophet. And John spoke like the prophets of old, just like Elijah. He spoke about sin, and he spoke about punishment, and he spoke about turning to God. And he spoke about it with a passion, with an urgency. He was preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah. And the Pharisees were quite excited. The Sadducees were quite excited. The Pharisees were the religious ones. And the Sadducees, they were religious too, but they were on a more political scene. They thought that the king coming would be the overthrowing of the Roman institute and they would have their own king. So they were all excited. And it was the Pharisees' MO. It was the 
modem apparendus. If there was a crowd going to be there, they wanted to be there. They wanted to be seen. They wanted the people to know who they were. And so John asked them, what are you doing here, you snakes? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins. What a slap in the face. They thought that they were the good ones. Prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins. So what is repentance? Well, repentance is being sorry for your sin. But it's not just being sorry. It's not a feeling word. It's an action word. So when you're sorry, there should be an action that comes with it. If you're sorry for anything, I'm trying to think of something to be sorry for now. <laughs> There's got to be an action. You can't just say, I'm sorry, and carry on doing the same old thing again. You've got to be sorry and show by your actions that you're sorry. So it's a change of mind followed by an action. It's not a one-off thing we do before God when we become a Christian, and that's it. It's an ongoing thing. And it continues to have an ongoing effect. When we first become Christians and we first say sorry to God, it doesn't end there. Because we don't become perfect when we become Christians. Life doesn't just suddenly, oops, there you are. We still do our same old things. We still get into our same old ruts and we still let sin into our life. So we still need to ask for forgiveness. We still need to repent. And Paul says it like this in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, I can remember when I first became a Christian. I gave my life to the Lord and I cried and I cried and I cried. And when we went to church, now, we were... were became Christians in a, an AOG church in Beach Haven, and it was a brand new church. There was probably about 50 brand new Christians there. And every service, everyone was crying and crying and crying. I don't think we had a service when anybody didn't cry. Now, why was that? It was because we were all new Christians, and we all knew the grace of God and we all knew what God had done for us, and we didn't take it for granted. And I hate to say it, but I don't see much crying in church, and I'm just as guilty. Why don't we cry? Have we forgotten how sinful we are? Have we forgotten what God has done for us? I think we need more tears in church. I think we need to be more repentant. And this is what John was coming to do. Godly sorrow brings repentance. That leads to salvation. Now that's joyful and that's great. And it leaves no regret. 
but worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is the end. Yeah, worldly sorrow is things like, oh, I'm sorry I got caught. Oh, sorry I did that. Sorry I hurt your feelings. The next thing, you do it again. Sorry I lied. The next thing, you do it again. That's worldly sorrow. But godly sorrow understands that it's my sin that breaks the heart of God. My sin, your sin, everybody's sin breaks God's heart. Because that's not we, what we were born to be. We were born to have fellowship with God and we can't have fellowship with God when sin gets in the way. When sin gets in the way, it becomes a barrier. God wants to break that barrier. He wants you to be repentant. So what is sin? Something we talk about, but what is it? There's a song we used to sing when I first became a Christian. Something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, Jesus understood. All he had to offer me was, bro all I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. But he made something beautiful out of my life. And yes, Jesus can make something beautiful out of your life. But first, you have to confess your sin to him. Our brokenness and our strife comes from our sinful nature. And as I was reminded in church last week, broken people need a counsellor. Sinful people need Jesus. God, the creator of all, has laid down the rules by which human beings are to live in order to be happy, fulfilled and pleasing to God. Sin is rebellion against God and against his rules. So when you're sinning, when you're doing those things, it's not against other people. It's against God. You're hurting God. In fact, Romans... Have I got it up there yet? Romans 2, 14 to 15 points out the fact that even those who do not know God or any of his word are able by nature to do what is right because of their conscience, which God gives us, showing us what is right and what is wrong. Unfortunately for many people, they've ignored their consciences and pleased themselves for so long that they have difficulty in discerning what is right and what is wrong. We are born with a conscience. We know, even when we're little, we know when we're doing something naughty. We know. I mean, that's why you go and hide when, you, when you've done something and mum's shouting, where are you? Come out here. And you're hiding because you know that you've done something wrong. That's your conscience talking to you. And the only way we can be given of our, forgiven of our sin is to receive what Jesus did on the cross when he paid the penalty for our sin. He paid the ultimate price. His life 
for yours and for mine. So remember, there's no repentance without action. There's no repentance without a change of mind followed by action, a product of salvation. So what should the fruit of repentance look like? Here, the crowds asked him, Oh, too bad. Crowds asked him, what should we do? And John's message demanded an action. If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with the hungry. Sharing and caring, that's action. Corrupt tax collectors came to him and to be baptized and said, teacher, what should we do? Tax collectors were so corrupt. Nobody liked a tax collector. I don't think many people like them very many, much nowadays anyway either, but it's not their fault. But they were rogues. They asked for more than what the government was asking for and they cleared a bit off the top for themselves. They got rich on other people's wages. What did John say to them? Collect no more taxes than the government requires. Go above and beyond. Be honest. Stop stealing. That was the action of repentance. Some soldiers said, what should we do? And John replied, don't exhort money. Don't make false accusations. And be content with your pay. Don't be violent. Don't falsely accuse. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. But John answered their questions by saying, I baptized you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater than I that I am not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. And then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. And John used so many warnings as he announced the good news to the people. These final verses was was what John was preparing for. He's saying, don't make a big deal out of me. I'm not the one. I'm just preparing the way for Jesus. For he will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now fire burns. And it hurts. But God is going to purify our hearts and he's going to make us holy. In um, olden days, when they went to winnow the, the wheat, they get a pitchfork sort of deal and the wheat would be on top of a hill where, it was a bit, where you could get a bit of wind and they'd dig the pitchfork in and they'd throw the wheat up in the air 
and all the chaff and the stalks and everything would be blown away and the wheat would fall down on the ground so that all you were left with was wheat. Well, God's going to make us holy like that. He's going to purify our hearts and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the good things and the worthwhile things in our life from the garbage. And we're living in an age where social media has a strong influence on who we are and how we act, how we dress, what we eat, and even how we think. We're living in an era where justice is based on our brokenness. The more broken our upbringing, the lighter the sentence, the lighter the consequences of our actions, it would seem. Right has become wrong and wrong has become right. There's misinformation, disinformation and lies that have replaced the truth. And sin has been watered down to little white lies and misdemeanors. We need a saviour in our lives. We need to confess our sins to God. We need to repent And we need to show our repentance by the fruit that is produced in our lives. And we need to show others the way to Jesus. John had a purpose. He was prepared and he was passionate. What is your purpose? What is your mission in this life? How prepared are you in your hearts? What are you passionate about? Can you be a voice in this world? A voice for Jesus, a voice for God, to lead others to him? Can you be repentant and show your repentance through your actions? Do we need to do a little bit more crying before God? I'll leave it with you. At the end of the service, there's usually a prayer team in the corner. And if anything's touched your heart, go and see them. Sit down and take time with God.